I never thought I would read the following statement in a brief filed by members of Congress of the United States. But I'm going to read you a statement from the brief just filed by the House managers seeking the removal and disqualification of former President Trump. Quote, the First Amendment does not apply at all to an impeachment proceeding. Do you know how dangerous that is? You'll hear why on The Dirt Show. This is a dangerous brief, a brief dangerous to the First Amendment and to all of our freedoms. I was shocked when I read it because I know some of the people who participate in its drafting. Jamie Raskin was my student. Uh, He was in my first year criminal law class, and he was a good student. And this brief is just shocking. It basically says, I'll read you parts of it because otherwise you wouldn't believe that a brief could be filed in the United States Senate by the House of Representatives that would make such outrageous statements. The First Amendment does not apply at all to an impeachment proceeding. The First Amendment to the Constitution doesn't apply to a constitutional proceeding. My recollection of the First Amendment is that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. How can the First Amendment not apply to an impeachment? In other words, what the House managers are saying is that a president can be impeached for making a speech which is protected by the First Amendment. Now, they go on to say that the president's speech was not protected by the First Amendment. They're dead wrong about that. But they start out with the assumption that the First Amendment doesn't apply at all, at all, to impeachment. Irrelevant. If Trump's lawyers try to introduce the First Amendment, objection, Your Honor. Irrelevant, Chairman Leahy, who is presiding. We don't want to hear about the First Amendment. The First Amendment, that's just an amendment to the Constitution. The Constitution itself says you can impeach a president. Why are we talking about amendments to the Constitution? Because the First Amendment governs everything that Congress does. Congress has no power to violate the First Amendment. So the most fundamental error of the brief is the claim that the First Amendment just doesn't apply at all to impeachments. The second fundamental error, which is really interesting because it's historical, is the first sentence in the part of the brief headed free speech. The First Amendment exists to protect our democratic system. Boy, would that have surprised the framers of our Constitution and the framers of our First Amendment. Let's remember, they did not believe that they were creating a, quote, democratic system. They were creating a republic. Remember Ben Franklin? It's a republic if you can keep it. The system for electing presidents of the United States was anything but democratic. It was elitist. The state legislatures would select electors. The electors would be wise men, wise, white, rich, land-owning men, And those wise electors, those platonic guardians, would decide who the best president would be. This was an aristocracy. 
not a democracy when it came to electing the president. And what about the Senate? The Senate, people didn't even get the right to vote for senators. Senators were selected by the state legislature. Now you might argue that state legislatures were democratically elected, but that's pretty derivative democracy. And let's remember who voted for the state legislatures. Let's remember who voted when there were elections that allowed people to vote. For example, for the House of Representatives, you had popular voting. So you might say the House of Representatives is the one branch of government that really was, according to the framers, democratic. No, 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 no. Under no definition of democracy would you call something a democracy if the only people who could vote were white, rich, male, and all kinds of other restrictions. In some states, you had to be Christian. Early on in our history, you had to be Protestant. Massachusetts had laws prohibiting uh, Jesuits from even coming into the country, uh, into the state. Uh, democracy? Democracy was not part of the plan. Democracy What was what was going on in France uh, during the revolution. The framers created checks and balances to prevent democracy from taking hold. A republic, a republic with a strong president, was what the framers had in mind. Let me give you an extreme situation, and people will find this hard to believe. If at the time of the framing, the state of New York or the state of Massachusetts or the state of Virginia said, we don't trust the people, even the limited number of people, the white, rich, male people, we don't trust them to pick electors who will select the president. So we're not going to give them the right to vote for the electors. We're going to just put the right to vote for electors in the state legislatures itself. So election day, you get to vote for the House of Representatives. You don't get to vote for the Senate. And you don't get to vote for president. Perfectly constitutional. That's what the framers had in mind. And so the idea that the First Amendment exists to protect our democratic system is simply deeply flawed. The First Amendment transcends any particular system. For example, in the years following the American Revolution, there were still in this country Tories. I lived right off Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The name of Brattle Street, the original name, was Tory Row because it's where rich people live. They had these fancy houses. Longfellow's house was just a few blocks away from me. Uh, that's where George Washington uh, was during the Battle of Bunker Hill or whatever in Boston. Uh, very historic uh, street. Tories. Who were Tories? Tories were a group of Americans who opposed the American Revolution, who said we should go back to Britain and we should become uh, subject to the monarchy. It wasn't really until the War of 1812 that the concept of America as completely independent of England received virtually universal support. Now, it was very widespread support for the revolution, but not everybody. Now, do you think the First Amendment was designed to prevent Tories from getting up and speaking? and saying, we're not so happy with this republic or with what some people want to produce a democracy. We feel much more comfortable with the king. Um, they hadn't seen Hamlet, Hamilton yet. 
So they didn't realize that the king was such a, a jerk as he was portrayed in Hamilton. They respected the king. They had the right to do that. The First Amendment transcends democracy. Yes, you can have democracy without a First Amendment, but you can certainly have a First Amendment without democracy. Britain had a monarchy, and during the time of its monarchy, it had freedom of speech, and that made it a better monarchy. If you even had a benevolent despot, you would want freedom of speech. So freedom of speech is not designed only to protect our democratic system. It's designed to allow people to oppose our democratic system. I know I lived through that during McCarthyism, when McCarthyites and others who supported McCarthy made exactly the same arguments that the House managers were making. That is, freedom of speech does not extend to people who want to take away our democracy. Therefore, you can deny communist freedom of speech, you can deny lawyers who defend communist freedom of speech. You can deny fellow travelers freedom of speech. In order to have freedom of speech, you have to support democracy as we define democracy. And therefore, McCarthy was right and the communists were wrong. Well, McCarthy was wrong and the communists were wrong. But our Constitution protects the right of free speech even for those who would deny us the right of free speech. That's the essence of democracy. It doesn't impose, and that's the essence of freedom of speech. It doesn't impose limitations on who has it. So even somebody who is advocating the end of democracy can have freedom of speech. The, the House managers use an interesting example. They say that um, a president could not call for secession of states. That would be perhaps freedom of speech, but he could be impeached if he called for states to secede. I don't agree with that. If a president got up there and said, it would be absurd, nobody would vote for him, if he would have said, look, our country would have been a lot better off if the South had seceded from the North we wouldn't have all those conservatives and all those right-wingers. This would come from a liberal or a radical. Uh, we wouldn't have all those conservatives from Mississippi and Alabama. Why do we need them in our country? We're supporting them financially. If you look at the way taxes go, the northern states are still contributing disproportionately to the southern states. Gee, wouldn't it have been better if the peace treaty between the north and the south had allowed Mississippi and Alabama to be a separate Confederate state. Dumb, stupid, wrong, historically inaccurate, protected by the First Amendment? Absolutely. The First Amendment protects advocacy of even abolishing the First Amendment. A person can get up there and say, and indeed many millennials are saying that today, many radical people on the left are saying it today, we don't believe in the First Amendment. We think there's too much free speech in this country. We think that Twitter and uh, Facebook and others should censor everything. Not only do we think private companies should censor, we think the government should censor. There are people today on the left who are advocating that position. I'm sure there are people on the extreme right who advocate that position. I defend their right to advocate the abolition of the First Amendment under the First Amendment. And you would think that Jamie Raskin and the framers of this very dangerous 
brief would understand that, but they don't. And they say, well, it, it, it doesn't matter because the speech he gave was not protected by the First Amendment. A First Amendment defense would fail. No, a First Amendment defense would succeed. Even the American Civil Liberties Union, who favors the impeachment and removal and disqualification of citizen Donald Trump, even the ACLU acknowledges that his speech was protected by the Brandenburg Principle. The Brandenburg Principle says that advocacy, even advocacy of violence, even advocacy of the overthrow of the government, is protected speech. What's not protected is immediate incitement. You can't stand in front of the Capitol and shout out and say, break in now, break in now, destroy the Capitol, kill policemen, rob the uh, laptop from the Speaker of the House. No, that's incitement. I defended somebody, and the ACLU was on my side. A professor at Stanford University back in the 1970s who stood in front of the computation center at Stanford and said the computation center is a war effort and the Vietnam War couldn't go forward without the Stanford Computation Center. So, and this is a pretty direct quote to what he said, I think it would be a good idea to take over the Computation Center. Immediately thereafter, a group of students took over the Computation Center, trashed it, engaged in all kinds of illegal conduct, and uh, Stanford University uh, tried to take away the tenure of this professor. Stanford is a private university. They had the right to do it. But the ACLU opposed it, and they asked me and another lawyer to support Bruce Franklin's right, saying that was advocacy, not incitement. That at least gives you some sense of where civil liberties community is at when it comes to restricting freedom of speech. And so this brief would curtail our freedom of speech. It would cut back on the Brandenburg principle. It would set back a century of progress over free speech. For what? For what? Not to remove a president. He's already, his term is over. The, the citizens removed him in the way that democracies allow citizens to remove a president they disagree with. They voted him out of office. Yeah, he protested the election. Yeah, he claimed the election was a fraud, that he really won. Do I agree with him? No. Do I think he had the right to say it? Of course he had the right to say it. Now, he was less polite than Al Gore. Al Gore also thought that he was deprived of the presidency by miscounting in Florida, but he spoke much more politely, respectfully, and ultimately conceded the election. But the First Amendment is not designed to promote politeness. It's designed to protect raucous speech disagreeable speech, speech you don't fundamentally approve of. That's what the First Amendment's all about. But not if you read this brief. This brief is so dangerous. Let me make a categorical statement. This brief filed by the Democrats in the House of Representatives and submitted to the Senate, this brief is more dangerous to freedom of speech, more dangerous to our democratic governance than anything they accuse Donald Trump of doing. Donald Trump's a former president. These are members of Congress. They're asking the Senate 
to abridge the First Amendment. They're telling the Senate to ignore the First Amendment. Again, the First Amendment does not apply at all to an impeachment proceeding. Ignore it. Don't pay any attention to the First Amendment. Why is the First Amendment in the Constitution? It's a constraint on Congress, a constraint on the Senate, a constraint on the House, a constraint on Jamie Raskin. And yet he doesn't seem to understand that. That Congress can't do anything in violation of the First Amendment. So here's the way they tried to get around that. It's a clever argument, but it doesn't work. They say, just as a president may legitimately demand the resignation of a cabinet secretary who publicly disagree with him on a matter of policy, that's true, of course, you can fire a cabinet secretary at will. The Constitution permits that. Just as a president may legitimately demand the resignation of a cabinet secretary who publicly disagrees with him, the public's elected representatives may disqualify the president from federal office when they recognize that his public statements constitute a violation of his oath of office and a high crime against the constitutional order. No, 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 no. The Constitution doesn't give Congress the same power it gives the president. The president has the power to fire a cabinet member. Congress does not have the, fire to, the, the power to fire the president. They tried to take it in the Constitutional Convention. Somebody introduced a resolution saying that Congress can remove a president for maladministration. Here's what Madison said. Madison was the father of the Constitution. He said, no, no, no. That would introduce the British system. We fought a revolution against Britain. We don't want the British system. In the British system, the parliament, the elected representatives of the people, can remove a prime minister if they disagree with them. All they have to do is a vote of non-confidence. And there were some framers who wanted to introduce that into our Constitution. Maladministration, vote of no confidence. Madison said no, and it was withdrawn. No, in order to rid the country of a president or to disqualify him from future office, he must be convicted of a high crime and misdemeanor. And that high crime and misdemeanor can't be a speech protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution. So the analogy to a cabinet member is absurd demeaning and utterly without historical support. The president under the Constitution has the power to simply snap his finger and say, I don't like the way that cabinet member is looking at me. You're out of here. You're fired. He can do that. Yes, President Trump was entitled to look at his cabinet member and say, you're fired, just like he used to do on The Apprentice. That's his constitutional power. But the Constitution denied Congress the power to fire the president. They limited that power to the president being convicted by two-thirds of the Senate of high crimes and misdemeanors or treason or bribery. And those are constrained, obviously, by the Constitution. And the Constitution has various provisions that limit the power of the Congress to rid themselves of president. Give you another example. What if a Muslim were to be elected president of the United States. And a group of senators and congressmen said, uh, uh, no, 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 we, we, don't, we don't like that. Let's impeach him on the ground that he's a Muslim. The Constitution prohibits that. It says explicitly, no religious test shall ever be imposed. But Jamie Raskin would come in and say, no, that, that's irrelevant to impeachment. Because if a Muslim 
is calling for Sharia law uh, to be uh, imposed on the United States, which is his free speech right. And if he got elected on that ground, all right, not wouldn't be very good for the country, but it would not be an impeachable offense. And so the idea that you can ignore the rest of the Constitution, you can ignore the First Amendment, you can ignore the religious test prohibition if you want to impeach a president because a president can fire a cabinet secretary is such a misreading of the Constitution, and it's such a dangerous reading of the Constitution. Finally, this very dangerous brief ignores the entire structure of how impeachment is supposed to operate. Let me again read you from the brief. The First Amendment does not constrain Congress from removing an official whose expression makes him unfit to hold or ever again occupy federal office. No, that's not what the Constitution says. Unfitness is not the criteria under the impeachment provision. It might be under the 25th Amendment if his unfitness resulted from mental illness or physical disability, but under the impeachment provision of the Constitution, unfitness to hold office is not a criteria for removal or disqualification. It must be treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And it can't be anything that's protected by the First Amendment. So please, I urge everybody, go online, read this brief. Don't listen to the New York Times assessment of the brief. They like the result, and so they're going to praise the brief. This is a D-minus brief with grade inflation. It's an F brief, even with grade inflation, on the First Amendment. And then we turn, and I'll only briefly assess this, to the provision of the brief that deals with the jurisdiction of the Senate to try somebody who's already left office. They just lay it out and say it's undisputed. There's no doubt about it. After all, we have professors. We have professors who signed the petition saying that the Senate has jurisdiction. Of course you have professors. They would have signed exactly the opposite brief. Not all of them, but many of them would have signed exactly the opposite brief if Hillary Clinton had been elected president and she had been impeached and removed after she left office. Many of these professors just first start out with the result they want and then find constitutional arguments, construct constitutional arguments, create constitutional arguments. These are the same people who condemn President Trump for telling the uh, Secretary of State of Georgia, find me votes. These are folks who go out and find constitutional arguments to support their conclusions. They find them, they manufacture them, they create them, they distort them. As long as it comes to the right result, they're happy to have them set out in a brief. But the most, most outrageous part of the brief on jurisdiction is they say there's no dispute. There's just no dispute. There's no argument on the other side, except the Constitution itself. The text of the Constitution, if you read it, it's so clear that the purpose of impeachment is the removal from office. And they never consider the implications. They talk about only the impeachment of a president, but the principle applies across the board. If you can impeach a former president, you can impeach a former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. The Republicans may do that if they come to power in 2022 and have enough votes to impeach Hillary Clinton for what she did. Uh, you can impeach President Obama. You can impeach President Clinton. You can impeach all former presidents as long as they are still 
eligible to run not only for president, but for any high office in the United States. And we know that some presidents, after retiring, have served uh, as chief justice of the United States and as a member of Congress. And they never consider the implications of their position because the Constitution doesn't distinguish between impeachments of former presidents and impeachments of other former office holders, except that when you impeach a president, the chief justice has to preside. The chief justice is not presiding. I don't know why he's not presiding, presumably because he read the Constitution and it doesn't say that the chief justice presides over the trial of a former president because it doesn't say there can be a trial of a former president. So please read the brief, read it with care, then compare it to the articles in the New York Times and other media praising the uh, uh, brief and understand that this brief today is directed against the free speech of a man named Donald Trump. But the implications apply to you, me, and every other American citizen. Because if the Senate were to vote to remove the president, former president, and to disqualify him, to convict him, based on this brief, this would set a dangerous, dangerous precedent for the future. A dangerous precedent about the First Amendment. A dangerous precedent about the general philosophy underlying freedom of speech, a dangerous precedent about the criteria for impeachment, and a dangerous precedent saying you can ignore the First Amendment when you engage in actions that you believe are worthy actions. The most dangerous statement in this brief still goes back to the one I read you at the very beginning, that the First Amendment does not apply at all. And the words at all are underlined in the brief, underlined. The First Amendment does not apply at all to an impeachment proceeding. I challenge any one of the House managers, Jamie Raskin or any of your colleagues, come on this show and debate me on the issue of whether the First Amendment applies to impeachment proceedings. I hope that gets debated on the floor of the Senate, because if that's debated... I think many senators will not want to vote for a principle that makes the First Amendment irrelevant to any government action. The First Amendment is relevant to every action of every Congress, of every senator, of every government decision maker. It doesn't always permit total freedom of speech in every context. There are limits on the First Amendment, but not the limits that were outlined and suggested in this very, very dangerous brief. So in days to come, particularly next week when the impeachment and removal trials are going on in the Senate, we'll be back uh, talking more about the dangers of this uh, proceeding, the dangers not only to the presidency, but to the rights of all Americans who believe strongly in our First Amendment. So stay tuned, come back and listen to The Dirt Show over the next weeks. You'll hear some very interesting points that you won't read about in major newspapers and you won't hear about on major TV, but you'll hear about it, you'll see it, and you'll hear discussions regarding it on The Dirt Show. So let's now turn to your comments and your questions about yesterday, the day before, other Dirt Shows. And please call me about this Today, call me about my view on the First Amendment. If you think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. If you're one of the House managers and somebody brings this show to your attention, call in. I'll give you as much time as you want to make your point. 
I don't think you'll be able to persuade anybody that the First Amendment is not at all applicable to an impeachment proceeding against a former president. Let's turn now to our first caller. Here's our first caller for today. Yeah, hi, this is uh, Jim from uh, Pekin, Illinois. Uh, I am a conservative, and um, I will be honest, the uh, comments from Marjorie Taylor Greene are extremely uh, concerning. And I do appreciate that you are consistent on this with uh, your notes about uh, Elon Omar and, and others uh, within uh, your preferred uh, party. Green's comments are abhorrent. Uh, and speaking as a conservative, just do not belong uh, in conservatism. Thank you. You know, it's great to hear that um, liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans can agree about one thing, and that is statements of the kind made by Green. Uh, about, you know, John Kennedy Jr.'s plane being destroyed by Hillary Clinton and and 9-11 attack on the Pentagon uh, not having occurred, uh, that we can all agree that those are beyond the pale of acceptable dialogue. They're protected under the Constitution. I would never prosecute her for making those statements, but she certainly shouldn't be uh, awarded a, a coveted um, um, uh, committee assignment in the Education Committee. And I think most Democrats and Republicans will agree that the statements made by Elon Omer, uh, that Jews kind of run the government through their Benjamins and that Israel hypnotized the world and other anti-Semitic and bigoted statements are also not acceptable and that she should not be serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House of Representatives. Unfortunately, at the moment, both of these um, disreputable members of Congress are serving on important committees in neither party has taken the responsibility of doing the right thing and marginalizing them within their party. It's Harvey and Henderson. Sometimes I read Tribe's Twitter feed just for laughs. He continues to insist that you have to prosecute Trump because if you don't, a future president in his, pri in his final week or two in office can go on a crime spree and get away with it. Can you please educate us if a future president goes on a crime spree in his final two weeks in office, if he murders people, robs banks, isn't he going to be arrested and charged with murder or bank robbery, whether or not he's been impeached? Something doesn't add up here. Okay, thank you, and have a great day. You're absolutely right, of course. Uh, Larry Tribe doesn't add up. Um, back when Clinton was president, he said that a president couldn't be prosecuted for crimes he commits while in office. As soon as Trump got elected, suddenly he got woke. And he said, if the president's name is Trump, he can be prosecuted for what he did uh, while he's in office. Whichever way you resolve that issue, um, and I don't think a president can be prosecuted while he's in office, uh, the Constitution explicitly provides that as soon as he leaves office, even if he's impeached, he can be prosecuted. So any president who commits any crime during his last month in office, can be prosecuted. Um, and he would have no defense um, based on his being a president. So if, if Tribe, in fact, has said that there's no remedy for a president who commits serious crimes during his last month in office, he's just dead wrong. Um, if what he said is a president can commit non-criminal impeachable offenses uh, during his last week in office, he may have a point, but by that time, if he's removed, the object of impeachment has been satisfied. I don't think it's 
consistent with democracy for the Senate or the House to tell us who we can vote for for president of the United States in 2024 or any other time. My own view is that the framers made a mistake by adding disqualification to what you can do to somebody once he's been removed. But plainly, they did not have in, in mind a broad power to disqualify ordinary citizens or former office holders from running for the future. And surely we want to narrowly interpret that provision so as not to give Congress the power to tell us who can run for president, who can run for other high offices. I like your show, Professor Dershowitz. It raises points that you're not going to hear on PBS for example, because they have an agenda. And so do places like CNN and Fox News. The difference is, and I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, are the people at CNN, like Brian Stelter, so scared of other ideas that they're trying to get Fox News and uh, Newsmax and, heck, maybe even JBS if they think your views don't conform to the norm. Thanks a lot for the Dur Show. I really like it. I do believe that uh, CNN uh, and their policies are driven by multiple um, factors. I think most of the commentators are very, very anti-Trump, and um, most of them are liberal Democrats. Uh, that's their prerogative. But I also think it's driven by um, by revenues. Um, they uh, had tremendous viewership uh, during the Trump administration, um, and the viewership grew as they attacked Trump and didn't allow dissenting views to be presented. Um, I was banned uh, from their network um, because of my views. Um, ultimately, uh, I sued them uh, because they doctored a tape involving what I said and turned it into exactly the opposite of what I said. But I think a lot of it was economically driven. Now their ratings have gone down dramatically because they no longer have anybody to attack. Once the impeachment is over, I think the revenues will go down even in more. And, um, and once the uh, pandemic is over, I, I think people will be watching a little bit less television in general. People who really, really want to be outdoors and mingling with people. So um, I think CNN's motives are, are multiple, but they also have uh, the, the Jeff Zucker um, clearly wants to present uh, an agenda that he thinks will help the bottom uh, line and uh, also an agenda that he personally supports, an ideology he personally supports, which is why he authorized and others in leadership positions authorized the doctoring of um, my tape and also the doctoring of some of President Trump's tapes. They eliminated some qualifications that he made in a variety of uh, speeches and settings, and the same thing was true with PBS, where they eliminated in both of his most controversial speeches, where he said, find people on both sides, they left out the part where he said, this doesn't apply to neo-Nazis and white nationalists who should be universally condemned. They edited that out. That's functionally the equivalent of doctoring a tape. And when it came to the president's speech uh, in the Capitol, they edited out the fact that he said, I want you to go peacefully and patriotically. That, too, in effect, is the same as, as doctoring a tape. And uh, yet that's PBS. Probably it will win a Peabody for its presentation. But I would hope the Peabody judges would look at not only what was in the show, but what was left out of the show. 
This is Kathy in Arkansas Ozarks. Thank you for your February 2nd show about extremism. You said it's the worst you've ever seen, and the calls you played, and really everything about that episode are evidence that the media, what we used to call the fourth branch, has totally collapsed. An example, if we had a functioning media, reporters would have followed Jared Kushner around the Middle East, and their outlets would have chronicled his efforts, good or bad. Instead, major media outlets just smear him on talk shows as a witless moron, and people just repeat that. You call them facts, but we don't have any facts. You heard callers parroting what different media have been spreading for their own purposes. People have questions, and without facts, they fall into this extremism. It's what happens when we don't have facts and questions are not answered. That's exactly what happened with the allegations of election irregularities. And the courts, as you obviously understand, because you've suggested the VIP commission, the courts don't seem to be the right forum to address that problem as it currently presents itself to us. So listen, almost none of my friends voted the way I did, and yet we all have to have compassion for one another because we are each making decisions based on a different assortment of facts, none of which seem to be true. So nobody can get too arrogant about what they think, really, today. Thank you for your show. Thank you for modeling civil discourse in this very uncivil time. It really is what gets me through the day. Well, thank you so much. What a thoughtful call. I mean, everything you've said deserves to be seriously considered, arranging from the courts are not necessarily the best uh, institution of government to uh, obtain the truth about very controversial issues. A commission of experts probably would do a better job to what you said about, you know, Jared Kushner. Um, the attacks on Jared Kushner have been so ad hominem um, and so one-sided, uh, people have not looked at what he actually did traveling from country to country along with Avi Berkowitz and others and, um, and uh, bringing about a result that nobody thought was possible and bringing it about in a very positive way that was a win-win for Israel, for the United Arab Emirates, for Bahrain, for <clears throat> Morocco, for the Sudan, and hopefully soon for others. A major, major accomplishment. And I'm so proud of being able to have the honor of nominating them for the Nobel Peace Prize. Obviously, I've gotten a lot of pushback on that, a lot of criticism. But uh, in the end, I stand by the nomination. And I do think that if the nomination were to be approved and they were to get the Nobel Peace Prize, it itself would contribute to peace and it would encourage other countries in the region to normalize relations with Israel. So please keep listening and keep making thoughtful comments like that. You know, comments like that really help the show. You really do provide the wits for the Der Show. So thank you for your wise, wise words. Thank you, um, for Professor. Love your show. Uh, wonderful work. The platform for free speech is uh, wonderful. Uh, I don't always agree with you, but I uh, very much um, respect the fact that uh, there is a platform to allow for the free speech. My, my question re relates to the impeachment um, trial and the, uh, the impeachment concept. And I've listened to your argument with respect to the fact that a president who is no longer president cannot be impeached. Um, am I understanding your argument to say that at any point in the impeachment process, can the office holder, whether it be a president or a judge, um, resign at any point during that process? 
and then defeat the impeachment. So for, so for instance, you can take the argument, the president or the judge or whoever waits until the very last day of the Senate trial and then resigns. Would that be enough to defeat impeachment? Do you think that's what the framers intended? Thank you so much, and I will await your answer. It's a very good question, and there is really a sharp distinction between somebody like Belknap, who resigned tearfully, admitting his guilt, essentially, in order to avoid impeachment and removal. That's one issue. The second is a president or other office holder who finishes the term. President Trump finished his term on January 20th at noon. He was no longer president. He didn't try to evade impeachment and removal by resigning. So I think there's a distinction between resignation and a termination of one's term through normal means, whether election or the term is over. Or in Hillary Clinton's case, um, she resigned um, to pursue her presidential ambitions um, as secretary of state. I don't think I think the case is much actually stronger for a a president or an office holder who naturally ended that term than it is for somebody who resigned. Um, but I think it's pretty strong for a person who resigned. Take Richard Nixon. Uh, he resigned, uh, and he resigned explicitly in order to avoid impeachment and removal. He was told by Republicans in both the House and the Senate, if you don't resign, you will be impeached. We will vote to impeach you. You will be impeached and you will be removed. Wouldn't it be better for the country if you resigned? He did, and they didn't impeach him. Uh, and they didn't disqualify him, and they didn't uh, go after him after that. Uh, that was better for the country. And I do think that uh, even resignation should preclude a trial. I mean, the analogy would be a person is about to be convicted of a crime and he commits suicide uh, to avoid being convicted and avoid the family having the stigma of a conviction. The trial has to stop the moment that the person is no longer alive because courts have jurisdiction in criminal cases only about people who are alive. It's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but it just shows that there are instances where people can take actions that uh, frustrate uh, an ongoing uh, legal proceeding. Um, and, and we've seen that in other situations as well. I know some professors uh, who resigned when they were about to be terminated, and that ended the jurisdiction of the committees looking into their termination. Uh, the framers simply never focused on whether or not a former office holder can be impeached. Um, some co state constitutions permitted it uh, explicitly. Uh, but the United States Constitution did not permit it, and its language would seem strongly to suggest that the jurisdiction of the Senate uh, does not extend to former office holders. Look, these are all interesting, debatable issues. What, what's wrong with the brief filed by the managers of the House is they make it sound like these are not debatable issues. You know, I've written, what, 300 briefs in my life, maybe more. Um, in my briefs, I always acknowledge when there are difficult issues, when there are complex issues. It's better advocacy when you acknowledge the difficulties and then respond. And I think that's what the House managers should have done. They are also government officials, public officials. Their job is to be fair, not to achieve a particular result. And in fairness, they should have at least said the issue of whether the Senate has jurisdiction is a close one. And here's the reasons why it should be resolved in favor of our position, not in favor of the other position. But they didn't say that. They said it's not a close question. It's obvious. It's clear. It's beyond dispute. 
You know, that's the kind of argument Professor Tribe always makes. But it's not the kind of argument that members of Congress ought to be making. The same thing is true on the First Amendment. The idea that they would say that the First Amendment is not at all applicable under any circumstances to an impeachment proceeding just overstates it. And it's a bad brief when it does that because people reading it will say, no, no, that, that can't be right. They've lost their credibility. And I hope that their brief does lose the credibility with many members of the Senate because it's overstated, overdone, and extremely dangerous. And so thank you all for your great calls. Today we really had exceptional calls, very, very thoughtful. And I welcome calls all during the uh, upcoming impeachment trial. This is an important time in our history, and I want your input on The Der Show. An important part of The Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Der Show.